We're in the epistle of 1 John. We've been there for the last three or four months. We're in the last chapter, chapter 5, and this is the only, maybe not the only, but it seems like the only epistle that contrasts relationship and fellowship, assurance and insecure, and ultimately is really dealing with emotions, how we feel about things, and how that relates to our faith. Uh, 1 John is unique in that regard to to deal with that part of our lives. My first long-term full-time job, when I was got out on my own, realized that, uh, you know what? Dad's not paying the bills anymore, and uh, they keep coming, you still got to pay them. And my first full-time long-term job was at Hand Polishing Company. We prepared metal plates and screws and joints and hip, and hip ball and socket, body inserts. We prepared them for uh, electroplating. Most of them were stainless steel. Some were titanium. When I first got that job, I really worked hard. Uh, I had a good work ethic and I worked hard, but I was still insecure and tentative inside for the very simple reason. It was all new and I didn't know how the boss felt about how I was working until one day he came by and uh, told me he appreciated my work ethic and the work that I was putting out. That's the way it is often with Christians, I find. Tentative, insecure, fearful, into that am I good enough syndrome. And it all has to do with their emotions. And what is the basis of these emotions that we experience? The Apostle John deals with that. In our text this morning, verse 1 of chapter 5, 1 John, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Promised One of the Old Testament, is born of God. Everyone who loves Him who begot also loves Him who is begotten of Him. And by this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome, for whoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. Verse 11. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And some of your translations go on to say, and that you may continue to fully, completely believe in the name of the Son of God. Heavenly Father, I thank you so very much that there is no ambiguity 
as to the person of Jesus and to why he came, that our faith may be secure, founded upon a foundation that is bedrock. How I thank you, Father, for the promised one who came, the Lord Jesus Christ, and for why he came and what he accomplished on Calvary's cross. Father, I pray that our lives would reflect that reality, that our faith would be not in our performance, not in our feelings, but in the verities of Scripture made reality in Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen. I used, I tried to use this clicker at the first service in Kenai, and it just wouldn't work. I did everything I could figure, change the batteries and one thing and another. And I come here, and guess what? When Justin used my clicker last Sunday, he gave me back his. <laughs> or s- <laughs> something like that happened. We, we don't know exactly what happened, but we got one that works now between the two of us. Once a day, every day, growing up, going by our ranch in the Yakima Valley, on its way to the end of the valley, a place called White Swan, Sagebrush Annie would appear every, every day. The primary income at White Swan was Hitchcock Lumber Company, and every piece of wood went out by rail. Back in the 1940s and 50s, trucking was just not here yet as it is today. It all was by rail. And it was one of those old country western trains with the choo-choo engine with the smoke coming out and then the coal car, and at the end, the caboose. That's the kind of train that went by our ranch every day. Speaking of which, remind me of the little childhood ditty. Uh, Maybe you've heard it, maybe you haven't. Peanut sitting on the railroad track, his heart was all aflutter. When along came a choo-choo train, choo-choo, peanut butter. It was one of those kind, it was a choo-choo train that came by. Now what made Sagebrush Annie unique was that on top of the caboose, and this train never did not have the caboose, whether there were two cars or 20 cars, it was never a big train, on the back was the caboose, and on top of the caboose was a rod that went up with a white swan on it that would go like that depending on the the wind and everything else, that was its signature. There were never many cars, and I really don't think the caboose served an essential purpose, except for a place for their brake man to drink his coffee and donuts. That's all they had to do. But the caboose was always with the train. The parallel in my mind, to the Christian life. is actually pretty uh, significant. We are the recipients of God's salvation, 
made possible through Jesus Christ because of who he was, God in human flesh, the promised Messiah, who gave his life to pay the penalty, the righteous indignation of God's wrath was poured upon our sin on Jesus. He took our place. He bore the penalty of sin, which is irreversible. The wages of sin is death every time, all the time. But Jesus took that penalty for us. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Those are the facts. Those are essential to salvation. Without them, there is no salvation. When we believed, when we placed our repentant faith in Jesus, the two were united, the facts of the gospel and our faith, and what transpired was new birth. When that new birth took place, for some of you, you were very conscious of that moment. And there was deep, deep emotion. You felt like a thousand pounds had been taken off of you. You were free at last. I was six, seven years old when I received Christ as my Savior. I didn't feel anything much different. And it was as I had a lot of growing up to do. And as I've grown up, uh, the significance of, of that transaction has become more and more clear. And I've had tremendous emotions along the way. But our emotions at the moment or since our salvation have absolutely nothing to do with salvation. They are a consequence or lack of consequence thereof. The engine and the coal car are essential to get the train down the track. The caboose is not. So, are, are our subsequent feelings, spiritually speaking, unimportant? No. Feelings are very much a part of who we are. And our feelings tell us that we're alive. We feel things. God has feelings. We are created in his image. It's very normal and right and natural to have feelings. Our feelings often, however, impact how we relate to God. And before we conclude today, I hope to show you why understanding this sequence is critical to our feelings and to our walk with the Lord. We're going to look in this text at the facts, the faith, and the resultant feelings of our salvation, but not in that order. First, I want to read from the 11th chapter of Hebrews, the faith chapter, verse 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, that's faith, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And that too is by faith. In our text this morning, in verse 1, we see the word pistis translated faith. Okay, are you going to be stubborn now? Okay, good. And then in verse 4, the word pistis is translated faith, believes and faith. Same word 
one a verb, the other a noun. What is faith? Faith, faith is, this is really complicated, so I want, to, I want you to really get this. Faith is believing that what God has said is true and acting upon it. Isn't that difficult? Believing that what God said is true and acting upon it. It's that simple. Faith believes that if God said it, it's a fact. And based upon that fact, I respond accordingly. This is the origin of our salvation. It originates through faith. And we read in verse 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. In verse 2 of the preceding chapter, chapter 4, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. That was in the test of spirits section. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the promised Messiah, the prophet that was to come, who it was said of him he will be born of a virgin, Isaiah, Micah that he would be born in Bethlehem, again Isaiah in 53, that this is the one who would bear our sins on the cross. That is the Christ. Those who acknowledged that Ho Christos, the anointed one, has come in the flesh. That's declaring the deity of Christ in human form. Those who believe that are born of God. This is the origin of our salvation. It is observed, interestingly, John says, everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who was begotten of him. I find it amazing. This is the sixth time that the Apostle John has mentioned as an affirmation of the reality of our faith is expressed in love for the brethren. uh, Back in Romans chapter 1, the next verse, verse 8 that I read, it says... uh, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And then it goes on to say, by faith, Noah built an ark. Faith that is real, that is absolutely trusting in Jesus and him alone, will always respond in action, in response to Just some kind of academic belief that Jesus was who he said he would doesn't cut it. It's a faith that changes who you are. You become a new creature in Christ. You have, uh, as Peter put it, uh, the divine nature has been infused within. You're a different person. And it just can't help but respond by loving those who are in Christ. If you are in Christ, you know you're in Christ if you love the brethren. If you don't, if you hate your brother, if you whatever, it's an indication you need to get saved. Six times he said this throughout the Gospel of John. 
So faith produces salvation. And secondly, faith prevents slavery to the law. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Therefore, when we keep his commandments, we discover that his commandments are not burdensome. Faith is ultimately a response of the heart to the love of God, which naturally leads to obedience. Obedience which flows out of relationship. We now have a divine nature, that new person that we are in Christ, the true you, not that old man, that old nature, but the new nature. Many religious people try to please God through self-effort, works of self-righteousness, and by so doing they become slaves to law-keeping, performance, orientation, expectations of others, checking the list, in an effort to be right with God, to, be, to, to know God or to whatever, they become human doings motivated by self-righteousness instead of human beings energized by the Spirit of God. This was the problem that Jesus faced with the religious leaders of his day, this primarily represented by the Pharisees, who through self-effort, keeping the list, and making sure they kept the list, they added all of these human traditions onto it to make sure that through their effort they would be righteous before God. That's an old, old approach to life that never works. It leads to self-righteous attitudes, and then it is soon tried to be imposed upon everyone around. What I have observed through the years in less obvious self-righteous attempts to relationship with God, the bottom line is man wants his cake and being able to eat it too. Ultimately, true faith is a surrender of one's will to God. You say, I believe. James said, show me. Faith without fruit, without a new nature, demonstrated by one's life, is dead. It's not real. It's not what the Bible is talking about. And I find that the most common self-effort is self religious self-effort rituals and so on. The only way to please God is to accept his way, and that way is grace, as a gift received by faith, not through self-effort. There's a recent spiritual self-help movement, and they call themselves overcomers. These are people who are Christians, But they've taken on the notion that through their self-effort, they're going to become overcomers. The Bible talks about being overcomers. And they have made themselves into some kind of a select group. 
what I've noticed about them is that they have redefined sin because they're no different than everybody else. They have issues with sin like we all do. But one of the fruits of their teaching is a partial rapture. When Jesus comes for the church, the overcomers will be raptured. Everybody else will have to go through the tribulation. And that's assuming that there's a pre-trib rapture. But that's what happens with this kind of self-righteous, self-effort thing. These are the kind of fruits that happen. Scripture says that we, in Christ, are already overcomers based upon our faith. And that is the third pillar upon which our faith stands. Verse 4, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Because it's Jesus who has overcome, and our faith is in him. Verse 5, who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the what and the who. We are overcomers by our faith in Jesus, who overcame at Calvary's cross. Revelation 12:11 says that we overcame also by the blood of the Lamb. Now this really is the key to successful living, to emotional, spiritual security, is having our faith correctly directed to the truth of the gospel. The alternative is to live insecurely and to be blown around by every shifting wind of doctrine. Faith produces salvation, it prevents slavery to law-keeping, and it provides successful living. Now, all of that is possible only if our faith is directed toward the right object. Faith in faith never saved anybody. I object to the terminology in our culture today. Oh, you're a part of the faith community. The Baha'i, the Buddhists, Islam, Mormons, Catholics, Grace Brethren, we're all part of this faith family. Why, that is so misleading. It's faith in what? And in our case, it's faith in whom? Faith in the historical Jesus revealed in Scripture. Not the Mormon Jesus, the half-brother of Satan. Not the Jehovah's Witness Jesus, who is a created angel. Not the Jesus of Islam, who never died on a cross. That was Judas that died on that cross. It wasn't Jesus. There is no atonement because Jesus never died. There's all kinds of Jesuses out there. But the historical Jesus of Scripture, who was born of a virgin in Bethlehem, lived a perfect life, died to pay the penalty of sin, and then rose from the dead and ascended to heaven and was coming again. That Jesus. When our faith is in him, John directs us then next to the facts. Verse 6, this is he who came. Now, and then he tells us. Now, this is going to sound like a strange way to speak. I personally believe, and I'm going to tell you right up front, I am in the minority in my understanding of what this text says. What I'm going to tell you is true, 
but it may not be being taught in this particular text. Or the majority view might be correct. And that is also true. So, so just uh, bear with this old preacher for a little bit. I believe, among other things, the whole of 1 John is a rebuttal to the Gnostics of his day. And when he said Jesus came by water and the blood, witnessed by the Spirit, I believe, personally, I, I, I lean toward the position that the water here is the water of the womb, and the blood was the blood he shed on Calvary's cross. Jesus was a real man, which the Gnostics denied, and God, real God, the eternal God in human flesh, which the Gnostics were all messed up on and taught otherwise. It's why I believe in chapter 1, verse 1, when, when um, John says the life Jesus was manifested, we, we, we heard, we saw with our eyes, we looked upon him, observed, our hands handled. He was very real, what, not some mystical thing. He was real incarnate flesh and blood. Jesus came by water and by the blood, and as such, God in human flesh purchased our salvation. And this the Holy Spirit made possible by means of the virgin birth, and then he bore witness at Jesus' baptism and other times. The, the more common view is that the water here is referring to the baptism of Jesus when he was inaugurated into his public ministry, which ended with the shedding of his blood. It would be fascinating to study 1 John in the context of the numerous heresies that sprang, sprang up in the first century. John is writing this epistle 60 years into the formation of the birth of the church of Jesus Christ. One, one heresy in particular was called the Corinthian heresy. I misspelled it there. I put Corinthian. That was just a Freudian slip. Uh, but it's Corinthian. They taught that Jesus was divine until he went to the cross. It was a human Jesus only who died on the cross. What does that do to, to redemption? What does that do to the atonement? It totally destroys Jesus' death on the cross as having any value for you and I. And I believe uh, John is clearly, throughout the epistle of 1 John, uh, confronting that heresy as well. Jesus' incarnation was real on, while here on earth, and we have the witness in verse 7. There are three who bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. These three are one. Now, many of your Bibles don't even have that verse in it. There are two main textual traditions that reflect the original autographs of the New Testament, the Nestle and the, the Western tradition. And as these translations were were reproduced, little errors crept in along the way, Very nothing that changed anything, but those then were perpetuated down through those traditions. Most people believe that 
the text for the New King James, which I use, is an inferior representation of the original text because it contains verse 7, and most scholars believe that a scribe or monk somewhere along the way inserted verse 7 to clarify verse 6. Didn't clarify anything. It's true, but does it reflect what John said in the original manuscript? Probably not. Either way, it's still true. The Father, the Son, or the Word, and the Holy Spirit, these three are one, and they all agree. And then, of course, there is the eternal witness of personal salvation. Verse 9, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. I believe it is the witness of the Holy Spirit within us. We read elsewhere, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. Now that is admittedly subjective. All I can say is that if you are one of his, you're going to know. One of the ways you're going to know is the conviction of sin. If you're truly a child of God, you have a new relationship to sin. It is now an enemy. It's contrary to God. You have a new nature, and sin is now contrary for you in a way that it wasn't before. And God the Holy Spirit will bring conviction to your spirit, through your conscience, in a way that you never experienced before. And God will not be content to let you continue in sin. You won't want to, to do that either. And so he has provided repentance, confession, and restoration for us. Another way is you have new values, new attitudes, a whole new worldview. This comes because of the presence of the Holy Spirit and a new nature within you. It's based upon your love for God and God's kids. It's based upon a new purpose a sense of a destiny that you didn't have before. You are a new creature in Christ. The divine nature, Peter said, is the real you now. That, I believe, is the witness of the Spirit that bears with us with our spirit that we are the children of God. And by this we may know. But if all else fails, God put it in black and white. Verse 12, He who has the Son has life, he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. It just flat comes down to Jesus. Does he indwell you through faith or does he not? Did God say it? That should settle it. Again, it comes down to faith. Not am I good enough, do I try hard enough, but have I sincerely placed my faith in Jesus? Again, I read verse 11. This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in our ability to do good. 
our ability to be better than the next guy, our ability to quote the Bible. What does it say? He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now, after five chapters, John finally gets to the bottom line. I remind you again, throughout the whole of of, uh, 1 John, he's been talking about relationship versus fellowship. Security, insecurity, assurance, lack of assurance. And that all deals ultimately with the foundation of our faith, but how we respond to it, our emotions. I have written to you who believe, that's who this has been written to, that you may know intellectually and emotionally that you have eternal life. Ultimately, it is an issue of feelings, emotions, because if you are truly a believer, how you feel about your salvation doesn't change the fact of your salvation. But it does affect the way you relate to God. I, I uh, used the illustration earlier in this series about my Uncle Rich, who was always afraid his anchor was going to slip. Anchored up in Chignik Lagoon, when the tide shifted, the boat rocked, and my uncle came charging down out of the top bunk, looking around, we're going to crash on the rocks. He was insecure. He had no assurance that the anchor would hold. But his lack of assurance didn't change the reality, the fact that the anchor did not and would not slip. He was secure, but because of his emotional state, he lived insecurely. Our feelings do not change reality. Only our response to reality. So, here is what I believe is one of the most significant purposes behind this whole discussion and the book of 1 John. Verse 13 says, By these these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you might know that you have eternal life. You might fully believe in his name, the name of the Son of God. The result is in our actions. If we're secure, our actions are going to be different than otherwise. You see there a utility repairman up a utility pole, leaning back in his harness, in the belt that goes around. He has absolute faith that he is secure. He has two hands free to do the repairs. What if that utility repairman had no trust in that harness? Both legs would be around the telephone pole or whatever it is, another arm like this, and he'd be up here with a wrench trying to do his work. That's a description of many Christians I have had experience with who lived their entire lives believing that if they did this little sin or whatever, they lost their salvation and they had to start all over again. 
and they were on this roller coaster ride that had no peace, no security, no fruit. They were just trying to hang on and keep their salvation. There are a lot of people like that because of poor and incorrect teaching. There is another category of people who lack assurance. They don't really fully comprehend and know their salvation because experientially things are not working. And if I know the person well, and usually if they're of the male persuasion, I just say to them after I've listened, so you're, you're insecure about your salvation. You don't know if you're saved after all these years. I say, so what are you into? Are you into porn or whatever? Every time, unless it's one of these that's been taught incorrectly, every time when we are insecure, it's because not that our faith has changed, not that the gospel has changed, but our, our, our emotions are way out of whack. Those emotions are red flags of telling us that something's going on in here. And in the case of insecurity of our salvation, it's pointing to, to sin. And God calls us to repentance. It's only in repentant, true, heartfelt confession that God brings peace. Until that happens, we'll be insecure. Our emotions are significant. But I remind you in closing, our emotions are not the basis of faith. They're not the basis of our salvation, receiving it or keeping it or whatever. It's the truth of what Scripture says and trusting and believing. Dear Jesus, thank you that there is no equivocation in the Scriptures. They are clear. The issue is Jesus. He who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. It is that cut and dried. It is that clear. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me, Jesus said, because not Confucius, not Muhammad, not Buddha, not Joseph Smith, not whoever, Jesus and only Jesus was qualified to deal with the issue of sin because he was holy God and sinless man and as such died to pay the penalty of sin that we might experience forgiveness and freedom. May that describe, Father, our faith, each of us individually. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.